Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum at the VHS. Delighted to see a good, good turnout today and um, hope we have a program you'll really enjoy. As always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And I'd also like to thank the Society of Colonial Wards in Virginia for co-sponsoring the lecture today. We appreciate your support and friendship, as always. It's safe to say that Thomas Jefferson had an eventful tenure as Virginia's governor, considering that it happened during the Revolutionary War. The story begins with the background of struggle against British rule, which we're all familiar with, and then the tumultuous outbreak of fighting and Jefferson's role in the Continental Congress, followed by his rise to the governorship. Influenced by Jefferson, Virginia had provided for a weak chief executive, and the state was, as a result, rather ill ill-prepared for invasion. When war came to the Old Dominion, the legislature fled the capital here in Richmond, and Jefferson narrowly eluded capture not once, but twice. In a new book, our speaker describes Jefferson's many stumbles as he struggled to respond to this unprecedented crisis. As a revolutionary leader who felt he was unqualified to conduct a war, Jefferson never resolved those contradictions. But as our speaker shows, he did learn lessons from the hard tutelage of war. Michael Cranish is a graduate of Syracuse University, no doubt a proud orangeman with the recent success of the basketball team these days. Well, since the 1980s, the mid-1980s, he has been a reporter for the Boston Globe. Much of that time has been spent in the Washington Bureau of that newspaper, including a stint at the White House. He's the co-author of a best-selling biography of John Kerry and a former fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies up at Monticello. And you might have heard or seen him recently here in Richmond. Proving uh, extraordinarily multimedia savvy, Michael has saturated our market in recent days in anticipation of today's lecture. He had an op-ed piece in yesterday's RTD, an interview this morning on WCVE, which I think ran, and a segment on Virginia this morning on Channel 6. So we thank Michael for bringing the attention to his lecture and to the VHS and wish all, auth all authors and speakers would, would follow his example. So with all this in mind, please join me in welcoming Michael Cranish, who will speak to us about flight from Monticello, Thomas Jefferson at war. sort of like a magic act where I prepare the trick while you're not watching, making sure there's water in the water glass. Okay. Thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you to all of you for attending. I come to this wonderful society, and I walked yesterday into the bookstore, and it was like walking into a part of my home because I looked at all the books, and they all looked familiar, not just the book that I wrote, but many books that I have read over time. Uh, some of them written by members of the society and by other historians. And it really is daunting to look at the part of the bookshelf where Thomas Jefferson is written about, because you have Malone, you have Ellis, many others. What new is there to say about Thomas Jefferson? And what is there for someone who is coming to this as 
a longtime reporter who's covered many presidential candidates and written many profiles, but has not written a history of the Revolutionary War before. Let me tell you why I wrote that story and why I think it is so very important to understand and understand the life of Thomas Jefferson. This is a time five years after Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. He's been governor of Virginia for about a year and a half. So let me just start the story a little bit back. You know, of course, when he wrote the Declaration, he felt that this would basically the most difficult period he wrote would be the following three months. He would have concern about what side people would take in those three months. But it's nearly five years later, and in fact, he's governor of Virginia, and the war has not been won. In fact, if you look at what was happening at that time, the war was raging in the North and the South. And in Virginia, Jefferson was governor, and the whole war seemed on a razor's edge. Twice there had been small invasions into Virginia, one of them just months earlier during Jefferson's governorship. However, when the British came to Virginia, they seemed to just stay as a tourist and leave. They'd come up the river, they'd do some plundering, they destroyed the Navy time and again, but they only stayed for a matter of days, and then they went south to the Carolinas, where they seemed to have more interest, and they had bigger wars to fight, bigger battles to wage. So as Jefferson is sitting in the governor's house here in Richmond, on the hill in a townhouse, he is hoping that the British do not come again. He's confident that they will not stay because that's what they've done so far. And if you can think of this scene in December of 1780, Jefferson's there with his wife and his young family. In fact, they've just had a young child named Lucy, and Jefferson has paid the midwife for that birth. He does not know what's happening up north. What's happening up north is that some months earlier, Benedict Arnold, this is a man who Jefferson had once called, quote, a fine sailor, a man whom Jefferson thought would be vital in defeating the British. In fact, British, of course, as you know, Arnold turned traitor, and his plan to capture West Point and possibly George Washington himself had failed. Arnold, at the last minute, had fled to a ship and then fled to New York. What happened in New York? What did Arnold do then? Uh, I think for a lot of people, they may not know the details. They may know about a raid here or there, and that he eventually returned to London and basically uh, lived the rest of his life in infamy. But something very important did happen in New York. Several months after Arnold had turned traitor, he and General Clinton came up with a plan. And the plan was a plan to try to turn the war back in their favor by cutting off the supply line to the South. Classic strategy. Throughout Virginia at this time, there were arms depots and supply stations, and men who were going to join the forces in the South would be resupplied. And as Cornwallis and others fought in the South against the Americans, they found that constantly the American supply would be replenished, and Cornwallis, among others, was very frustrated at this fact. And Arnold was well aware of this. So Arnold came up with this plan with Clinton to send a fleet to Virginia. Only this time the plan would be not just to stay as a tourist, but to stay for as long as it took to cut off the supply line. And it was an audacious plan um, and a very well-reasoned one if you look back at the history of the conflict. So in December of 1780, there is a large fleet in New York, George Washington's aware that a fleet may be heading south, and he sends a message to Virginia, as he has many times before. And he tells Jefferson that there is a fleet headed south. We don't know where it's going. We don't know who's on it. But I'm sure that if it comes to Virginia, the men of Virginia will show virtue as they always do and beat them back. 
So he put a lot of trust in his fellow Virginians. Jefferson would receive this warning time and again, and time and again he'd called out militia, and the militia were constantly frustrated that sometimes there were false alarms. It was very difficult. They served three-month terms. They were poorly armed, poorly equipped. They were concerned about leaving their farms' families behind if they served. So there wasn't a huge standing army here, obviously, to depend on, depend on, and Jefferson obviously had concerns about such a strong standing army. And a lot of Virginians had gone north and south to serve in the Continental Army, some of the best uh, men in the state uh, who wanted to serve for long periods in the war. So as Arnold and Clinton have their plan here in New York, here in Virginia, really they have no idea what's going on, and they're not prepared. And the systems of warnings is just not effective. So in late December of 1780, Arnold orders the men in New York on board the ships, and the men aren't told where they're going. In fact, one of the men on board is a Virginian who's a spy sent by George Washington. He was supposed to have tried to capture Benedict Arnold, but before he can do so, he's told to go on board uh, one of the ships, and he has no choice but to do so. So 1,600 men are put aboard 27 ships, and they head south towards Virginia. And there is, as Benedict Arnold later described it, a hard gale, very difficult storms, And in fact, the storms are so bad during these several days as they head south to Virginia that 400 men on some of the ships are separated for many days. And one ship with 100 horses, they have to let go half the horses at sea to keep the boat afloat. They lose arms overboard. It's a very, very difficult journey. The officers on some of these ships were given just an envelope and said, on day such and such, open the envelope and you will learn where to meet so as to keep the mission a secret from the Virginians. And that day came, the message was to assemble at the Capes of Virginia. So just at the end of 1780, that's what happened. The fleet met near Willoughby Point in Virginia, and there is a sailor from the Virginia Navy. The Navy is very, very small. It's been hurt by the two previous invasions. But there's a man in a small ship. It's called the Liberty. And he looks up, and he sees what he describes as 27 sail. And he doesn't know where they're from or what their mission is, and he's concerned that if he goes along in his small boat to meet them, that if it's an enemy, he'll be easily captured. So he rushes back to shore, and there's a message that he gives to Governor Jefferson. He gives to be sent to Governor Jefferson. And so messengers at 40-mile segments race through the night to deliver a message to Governor Jefferson about this 27-sail fleet. And the next morning, Governor Jefferson is in his townhouse here in Richmond. He's in his garden, and a messenger, very weary, goes up the hill and gives the governor the message. And the governor looks at it and is distraught because the message doesn't say what the fleet is. And he thinks, well, maybe it's the French allied fleet, which he had been hoping would arrive. Or maybe Jefferson said it's a foraging party, quote unquote. 27 ships, a foraging party, it seems unlikely. But he was clearly hoping for the best because he knew if the worst was to come, Virginia's Navy, as he put it, was basically worthless. He knew that there was no way that the Navy of Virginia could stop a large, well-armed fleet. So for a crucial day, he called out some militia, but not that many, and he sent men for more intelligence. And a day passed, and Jefferson wrote in his diary, quote, no intelligence, unquote. Does not know what's going on. In a time of the Revolution, coming across unimpeachable evidence of an invasion fleet it's just very difficult. They didn't have communication immediately. Um, what they did find out was often conflicting, and yet this is what he hoped for. He hoped for the best. Meanwhile, what's Arnold and his men doing? 
This is something that I really wanted to try to understand as a writer writing this story. Because if you read the history of the revolution and biographies, oftentimes the first couple of days of this invasion, when Jefferson had so little knowledge, it seems to be a blank slate. And so as a journalist, my other role, I wanted to find out if there was some information on what did happen during these first couple of days during the invasion. So what I did was I found out that there are logs of these British ships at the British National Archives, and I obtained as many of these ship logs as I could. And I went through the logs, and I found that there are names of officers. Some of them we know were on the invasion. Others were names I did not recognize in what I had read. So I looked up these officers and tried to find out had they written at any point in their lives letters, journals, anything about the Revolutionary War in Virginia. And some of them had, and a couple of them had, in fact, written about these first couple of days that seemed to be a blank slate. So, for example, one officer wrote how when they first arrived just at the Capes of Virginia, that 300 men went on shore, and they were, in essence, looking for plunder. One of Arnold's missions here was not just to help win the war for the British, but was to gain prizes and plunder for himself. And in fact, one of the things I write about in this book is that he had a secret deal with a fellow officer that they would split much of the plunder. And this was something that cost a lot of effort on Arnold's part and obviously undermined a lot of the effort because they would constantly go looking for prizes when they might have better been looking for arms depots. 300 men went ashore in one town in particular, and they went from house to house. At some point, someone said that they were concerned that these um, individuals in the houses might warn people in Richmond what was happening. So they decided to take people out of their beds. And so as this officer described it, that they took the, quote, principal inhabitants, unquote, out of their beds, quote, to the deep cries and lamentations of their families. They held them for some time to make sure that they would not warn others that the British, in fact, were coming. But in fact, some militia, who have been somewhat maligned and somewhat understandably in some cases and sometimes unfairly, given how easily the British came up, there were militia locally who, on their own, heard about some kind of enemy force coming up the James River. And so in several places, in fact, the militia did take on the British forces and their Hessian allies. And there are several vivid descriptions in journals and diaries that I use to write this portion of the book. For example, there's one skirmish where the men on shore, they're poorly equipped, some have muskets, some have swords, some have hatchets, and they assemble on shore to see what's happening. They had no idea such a large British fleet with their cannons would be there to greet them. And they fought briefly, but then they had to retreat, understandably, otherwise they'd been taken prisoner. Further up the James River, another encounter occurs. Arnold sends a message to the men on shore saying that uh, basically to give up right away, show the white flag of truce. This group of men is led by a man named Thomas Nelson, who I'm sure you all know, who later became the governor of Virginia. And this group does not want to give up to Arnold. Very luckily, around the same time, a friend of Jefferson, apparently unaware that the British fleet was heading up, happened to be in a nearby wood. And he was hunting duck or geese or something like that. And he was sending shots off into the air. And the British heard these shots, and they did not know if it was a man hunting a duck or a large Virginia force of militia waiting for them. <laughs> At that point, Arnold and his men, who had been thinking of maybe going up towards Williamsburg, even though they knew it was no longer the capital, decided that perhaps they might reconsider their idea. They looked at the breezes, felt the breezes with their sails, looked at the sails, and decided that best to head further up towards Richmond, which really was their goal to begin with. So they head further along. And at this point comes a moment where the invasion should have been stopped. 
Some of you may be aware of a place called Hood's Point, which may be a little bit lost to history, but is a very important part of this story. And if any of you have ever been on the beautiful James River, you know that at the Capes of Virginia, it starts like a large part of a funnel and gradually narrows and narrows and narrows. And as it gets to this point, some 35 miles from Richmond, there's a high point of land. And Jefferson himself had known that this would be the perfect place to put a fort because you couldn't have designed a better shooting gallery with which to stop an invading fleet at this narrow part of the funnel, shooting down from a promontory of land on the James River. However, you won't be surprised if you know anything about politics that the legislature bickered a little bit about this idea. (laughs) They studied it, and they considered it, and by the time the British arrived, there was but a shell of a fort there, and only 90 militiamen manning this fort, no match for the more than 1,000 British and Hessians who were coming upriver in their ships heavy with cannon. So as the British fired some few shots as they approached this bend, the militia realized how great a force this was, and wisely they took the back road and they fled. And thus the British easily passed Hood's Point, where they should have been stopped. Just around the next bend, they came to a place called Westover. Some of you may be familiar with Westover, the plantation of the birds. It's a beautiful, beautiful house, one of the most beautiful anywhere in the country. And however, at this time, it was also the house of a woman named Mary Willing Bird, whose portrait hangs here at the Virginia Historical Society. Mary, it so happened, was a cousin of Benedict Arnold's wife, Peggy. So Arnold knew that there was someone waiting there who he knew. And the force landed at Westover and also spilled over to the neighboring plantation of Berkeley, the home of the Harrisons. And it seemed like a wise idea, perhaps, to stay there and let the men rest, for they'd been at sea and in the river for many days, and it had been a very, very tiring journey, and perhaps they should regroup. And that seemed like that's what they would do and what Arnold decided that they would do until a fellow British officer suggested to Arnold that they should not stop, that now would be the perfect time to surprise Jefferson and the others in Richmond by going the back way by land towards Richmond. And so Arnold decided he'd been through many battles himself on the American side and decided that this was a good idea. And so they took about 900 men by the back roads over lightly guarded bridges and trails, easily surprised the defenders, and made their way towards Richmond. And there was no warning like that for Jefferson. (laughs) If only there had been. Okay. (laughs) Hopefully someone will silence the warning. (laughs) Thank you. Jefferson's at his townhouse. He finally receives another message from another um, person warning him. This time, there's no question it's the British, and eventually word does get to him that it is, in fact, the man he once considered a, a fellow patriot, Benedict Arnold, now turned traitor. So Arnold and his men come out of the wood, and they want to make sure that they're seen. They actually make a show of it. Rather than trying to surprise at the last minute, Arnold's idea is let's let the people of Richmond see how great our force is. So they make sort of a grand entrance out of the wood towards Richmond. And there are some hundred, several hundred militia that have assembled by this time. And they do have a couple of skirmishes on the hills of Richmond. But it's very brief. There's no way that they could possibly beat back the British. The British force is simply overwhelming, far larger in size and far better equipped. So Jefferson, the legislators, many others at this point fled 
In fact, one of Jefferson's slaves, who was behind, later said that within 10 minutes, there wasn't a white man left in Richmond. (laughs) And the slaves were captured, uh, and Richmond was basically laid waste. We all know the story, of course, of what happened during the Civil War. What's striking here, Richmond at this point is basically a frontier city. It's got maybe less than 1,000 people. Jefferson himself had basically overseen the transfer of the capital from Williamsburg to Richmond because he felt Williamsburg was too exposed to an invasion force and Richmond would be much safer, that you'd be able to see the invasion force coming far ahead of time, get warning, and stop it. It sounded like a good idea. Obviously, it didn't work out that way. Of course, Jefferson also liked the idea that Richmond was more to the west, closer to Monticello, and looked west, as he thought the nation should. Jefferson, at this point, is going across the river. Remember, he has his wife and his very young family, several children with him, including the young baby, Lucy, who was just recently born. Very striking to me is how concerned, time and again, Jefferson is about his family. Clearly, Jefferson was ineffectual as a leader because he did not stop this invasion force. There's no question about that. I think if he were here today to talk to you, he would say the same thing. He was not the right man for the job when it came to a military role. He had said that his... He did not have any training by the life of, line of his life to be a military leader, and he was not. However, it's also important to know that he was not a coward. He did not run to the mountains, as many others did. Instead, what he did was he took his wife, Martha, and their children upriver to Tuckahoe, where he thought that they would be safe. This was, of course, um, a boyhood home for Jefferson. And then further, during the next couple of days, when he became concerned, Tuckahoe would be the subject of a British attack, and in fact, the British did go there. He took them further up the river to a place called Fine Creek, another Jefferson property. So he kept them in safety. And I think that's very dramatic, very important to understand Jefferson's thinking at this moment. He is not part of a militia group. They're doing their work. He is on his own at one point with his family, taking them to safety. He comes back right away, makes sure they're safe. And he oversees the transfer of certain arms and certain papers to a place of safekeeping. For several days, maybe three days, he's running around Richmond, trying to contact the lone Continental officer who's really doing something in the state, Baron von Steuben, who he's given some great responsibility to, but they can't connect with each other. They keep on missing. So Jefferson's across the river in Manchester with his spyglass at one point looking, and he sees the ruin that has been laid to Richmond. And there's a Hessian officer who later writes in a very important diary about this. And this Hessian officer writes that of Richmond, he said, quote, half the place was in flames. He said, terrible things were done on this occasion. Holy places were plundered. He described it as being like a freebooter's mission, and he said 42 vessels were loaded with booty. So I think this officer's description provides us with a much more vivid account of what Jefferson himself was seeing during the days of this invasion. It's perhaps more dramatic damage than than may be realized. Finally, the British do leave, and Jefferson does come back when he knows for sure that all the British are gone Uh, and he surveys the damage. And gradually, they try to collect more militia forces as Arnold's men do go back to Westover. Some British are captured as they try to go back. They trudge back. Rather than staying, they they go back. And some are captured. So the militia is gradually, slowly getting some strength and taking some action. There are some places where they do take on the British. But time and again, there's battle after battle, small skirmishes, where the British simply overwhelm uh, the Virginians. And through this book, I call the book Flight from Monticello because it's very well known, at least in Virginia, that Jefferson eventually had to take 
flight to Charlottesville where he hoped the legislature could meet in safety. And eventually he was at Monticello and had to take flight from Monticello. And I describe that in great detail in the book. And I'm not talking about it in this part of the talk just because I hope you'll read the book and want to learn more about that. <laughs> My publisher told me to do that, so I thought it was a good idea. What's important to realize is that the flight from Monticello was a period of very short duration. The flight or flights from Richmond take place over a period of weeks and weeks. In fact, for about four or five months, there's flights here and there over the state. So this period, which gets pretty small treatment in a lot of places because the flight from Monticello is pretty dramatic, um, really is very, very important. And if we were here during Jefferson's time, Imagine a period of four or five months when you're constantly sending notes back and forth um, to people saying the British are maybe here, they may be there, and then learning that more British are coming, that Lord Cornwallis is coming from the south with Bannister Tarleton, and another fleet is headed by a man named William Phillips. Let me digress one second to tell you a little about William Phillips. He's a great British general, well-known in British lore, and you may know part of his story. What intrigues me about William Phillips is that he actually was a prisoner two years earlier in Charlottesville. Two years earlier in Charlottesville, or before, a little more than that, maybe two and a half years earlier, Jefferson had thought it was a good idea that British prisoners of war from Saratoga be kept near Charlottesville. The prisoners had been in Massachusetts. Massachusetts had been concerned the British would come free them easily by the coast. Jefferson and his neighbors thought it'd be great to bring them to Charlottesville because, for two reasons. Number one, Jefferson was absolutely certain that the British would never go as far as Charlottesville. It was simply too remote, and if they did, the men in the surrounding area would easily stop them, and that would prove to be wrong. Secondly, Jefferson, thinking like perhaps a congressman of today, thought that bringing these prisoners to Charlottesville would bring a lot of money into the local economy. <laughs> in fact, when someone said this is not such a great idea, Jefferson wrote complaining to then-Governor Patrick Henry that, in fact, the prisoners were bringing $30,000 a week into the Albemarle County economy. So it really did make an impact, and he thought that was important. Jefferson also liked the idea that these prisoners, some of them were craftsmen who could work um, in the county, and also that some were accomplished violinists, because as a lot of you may know, Jefferson was an accomplished violinist, and he called music the passion of my soul. And he liked the idea that some of these officers could accompany him in the parlor at Monticello with, their, with his wife Martha on the harpsichord and play Italian sonatas. And that's what happened. William Phillips, the British general, as prisoner, was kept at an estate right near Monticello. And Phillips was a favored guest there, and Jefferson believed that even as enemies that the officers could be friendly with each other. So he had a lot of hope that they could have a good relationship, but two years later, two and a half years later, Phillips is leading a very large force, and he joins with Arnold. And then later, Cornwallis comes in, so there's this massive force in Virginia, more than 7,000 men. And I describe in detail in the book these various forces coming in and converging. So you can just imagine if you're the governor of Virginia, and how difficult it is for the militia to come out and with no navy facing this great British force that you do believe, as I said at the beginning, that the revolution really is on the razor's edge. Before I take questions, let me just tell you one more thing about um, my experience in writing the book. And that is, is that I see the writing of a book really as two paths. One path leads to places like this wonderful institution here, the Virginia Historical Society, where I did do a, a lot of research. For example, the Bird family uh, documents that are kept here, the original documents, which I paged through one by one and, and used that story of William and Mary Byrd quite a bit in my book to tell what was going on in Virginia, because these were main characters throughout the story. The other path is to literally walk the path 
that men like Jefferson walked. So for part of my research, I was a fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, which enabled me to live on a shoulder of the mountain just below Monticello itself and spend a good chunk of time really trying to live um, to soak in the atmosphere. And one day I could ask someone from Monticello, can you take me on the exact path that Jefferson would have walked from the river of his childhood home up to Monticello, not the path the public takes, but the wooded path that Jefferson would have taken. And they're able to do that. They took me up the path, and I was able to measure at a Jeffersonian pace how long it would have taken Jefferson to take that walk. And I described that in the first sentence in the first chapter of the book. The other great part was that I got to sort of soak in the mountain atmosphere. Jefferson loved this mountain so dearly in the home he built there. And he described it in vivid detail many times. And there's one letter in particular that I thought of as I was there on one very stormy night. A lot of thunder, a lot of lightning, the windows are rattling. And it's just one of the greatest storms I've ever felt. And when you're up there on this mountain, there's a couple of other fellows in nearby buildings. um, And there's a security guard that comes through regularly. But that's about it. It's very dark. And you really get the sense of what it was like to be there on that mountain back in Jefferson's time. Because so much of it um, is today as it was then. And so I thought of a letter that he wrote to a woman that he was later in his life trying to bring to Virginia. And he wrote to Maria Causeway, an artist, if you'd come to Monticello, you'll see this wonderful place. And he described being up there at Monticello, and he wrote, with what majesty do we ride there above the storms? And I thought that was such a lyrical phrase, and Jefferson's not always known for his lyricism. He's known to be a great writer. But here he was trying to describe what he felt was the majesty, not just literally of the storms on a dark night, but also the storms that he had been riding over through these very difficult days of the invasion. And you can only imagine how much it would have meant to him if he had to take flight from Monticello as he did when the British were coming literally minutes before he left and how difficult it would have been for him to take flight from Monticello. Thank you very much. Uh, Now I can see you. Okay. <laughs> uh, now I'll take questions, and I'd love to take it. Yes, sir. The white sweater. Thank you. Very much for your presentation. Thank you. Uh, you indicated early on uh, that uh, Jefferson, by his own admission, did not really have the capabilities in the context of you know military strategy and how to handle in that context the uh, upcoming invasion. But I read here and there that that aspect of Jefferson during these times um, let me rephrase that if I may that other criticisms of Jefferson really transcended the fact that he was rather deficient in military context. Maybe people were taking issue maybe out of context the fact that he was leaving. Some perceived it as being Sure. Yeah, let me repeat the question if you didn't hear it. And that is, is that was Jefferson accused of cowardice? But he didn't use the word, but others did, um, because of his flight from Richmond or taking flight, or was it something else? And I didn't get to purposely in the talk the detail of the flight from Monticello, but let me introduce that a little bit to explain, answer this question. And it's a very good question. And that is, is that just as Jefferson fled Monticello in the day or two before, he decided not to take a third term as governor. And this left Virginia without leadership at one of its darkest hours. 
And understandably, Jefferson was severely criticized for this. Some of his best friends, childhood friends, criticized him for leaving the state defenseless. And if you can read letters, which I quote in the book, about what happened during the time in Richmond. So he was criticized that, no question, for not defending the state more properly, but also for vacating the governorship. This was something that um, you probably is one of the harshest criticisms you can level at Jefferson, that at a time when the state needed leadership, he did not, at the very least, arrange for a succession of leadership. There's a period of several weeks there where really there's no leadership in the state. The legislature had met in Charlottesville for the purpose of requiring more militia to assemble more quickly. The British had heard about this, and this is the reason that Tarleton was sent to Charlottesville. The idea was to, quote, disturb the assembly. In other words, stop it from meeting, stop it from putting out this crucial order. So the legislators had fled Richmond to Charlottesville. They met in a tavern. It's a very small town at that time, very small village. And some had stayed. The speakers of the House and Senate had gone up to Monticello, and others had gone up to Monticello. And Jefferson had hoped they'd be safe there, and they were obviously not safe there. Jefferson believed that looking over this great prospect, if you've been there, you can see a long distance. Jefferson at one time described being on one of the, on the hill above Monticello, he could see 10 or 12 counties on a clear day, and that he could see almost to Richmond on what they call the sea view. So he felt they'd have advance warning. The big problem was that, as I say, he did not continue in the governorship. He said, basically, I'm not the right man for the job. I don't have any military training and that there are others better prepared. And he began to realize that the idea of having a very weak uh, governor who wasn't really a military leader was not a great idea. And he felt others could be better. Maybe it'd be George Washington coming down. Um, And specifically, I think he believed that Thomas Nelson um, of Yorktown would be a good person to pick. Nelson had actually written Washington sometime earlier saying that Nelson didn't feel that he was a great um, trained military man, but Nelson had been involved with military duty on the field of battle with the men so he clearly had more experience. So it took some time for the legislature in Stanton to come to that agreement to name Nelson as governor. And even then, Nelson, people didn't know where Nelson was. It took a while for him to come to Richmond and so forth. But eventually, he did join on the field with the men up until the time of Yorktown, took them uh, right up through, through Yorktown. Uh, and Jefferson spent many months composing basically a defense of his actions. He was at Poplar Forest, which then was basically just an overseer's cabin. And he wrote out a defense of why he did what he did. Talked about the militia, difficult to call out, talked about the the Navy. He wrote, this is in, if you've read notes on the state of Virginia, he'll go at great length describing the flora and the fauna. And there's one chapter he basically about the Navy. The chapter is basically one sentence long. And the sentence basically says it was worthless. (laughs) So he knew that that was a great deficiency. And that was his way of putting in context how difficult it was. Yes, other questions? Yes, sir. Did you visit Cuckoo, Virginia? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the question is, um, did I visit Cuckoo, Virginia, which is a reference to the tavern that a man named Jack Jewett was at. I believe that's what you're talking about, right? Um, and Jack Jewett is a man who a lot of people here in Virginia know, but I must tell you, outside of Virginia, I don't think the name is known at all. Paul Revere had his poet Longfellow. I don't know that Jack Jewett has had any poet whatsoever. There probably was a poet somewhere who wrote lines about him. But um, Jack Jewett, of course, made the famous ride that you probably are familiar with of about 40 miles to Warren Jefferson that he should flee Monticello. And in fact, took another man after that to Warren Jefferson, no, you really have to flee Monticello. (laughs) Because the British are coming up the road. And Jefferson went out and finally did see that they actually were coming. And he did, 
he did take flight. One of the things I did in this um, research that I really found interesting was that I wanted to retrace Jefferson's flight. I thought, this is one of the great escapes in American history. Where did he go exactly? How did he do it? I knew he went to Poplar Forest, but I didn't know exactly how. And I must tell you, there's no road sign from an historical society saying Jefferson took flight at this point. <laughs> didn't see it. Maybe it's there. Um, but I was able to, using memorandum books, letters, other things like that, to pretty much retrace the route that he took. And it's a really interesting route. I describe in the book how he crossed rivers, forded rivers, stopped at taverns, went through mountain passes. And I was able to retrace. And in the book, there's an inset of the map where I give you a little bit of the sense of the flight route that he took. He went to a friend's house, uh, left his wife and children there, then returned to Monticello, then took them back down to Poplar Forest. It was a very dramatic flight, very, very important. But I do feel that if my book can do anything, perhaps it can bring more attention to the... Um, the great story of Jack Jewett. So thank you for that question. Other questions? Yes. I'm sorry. There was a... Sorry. How long did it take you to write the book, uh, Research and Authorship Combined? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? How long did it take you to construct the book, Research and Authorship Combined? Okay, uh, the question is, how long did it take me to construct the book, Research and Writing It? That's a really good question. And I did this maybe different than um, others might do it. I did it the way I do a very long story for my newspaper because it's just the way I've learned to do it uh, 30 years as a reporter. But it makes sense for me. So what I did was I constructed a very, very, very long chronology of events from the start. A very long chronology. Some of it's written in the form I may want it to be in the book, although everything's rewritten many times. Um, And using that chronology is very important because I started the process some two and a half years earlier, and then it might be a year and a half later, I find some crucial fact that's conveyed. And then I, I may have forgotten what happened when. I fit it into the chronology. This all seems obvious, but it's really, really important. So I constantly am using this chronology, in my case on a computer file and in writing, to understand what's happening and then feeding things in, going day by day. And so during periods of the invasion, I want to know what's happening here, what's happening there. So let me give an example of why that's so important. Things that seem very Um, unimportant at the time can be important later. There's a scene I describe in which Jefferson and his wife go through a very traumatic experience here in Richmond. And I'll let you read the book to find out what I'm talking about. But to describe that, (laughs) to describe that, I want to give you a little more sense of what's happening in Richmond. And there's a diary I read by someone unconnected with Jefferson but who was living near Richmond. And in that diary, this other gentleman writes that there was an ice storm on this particular day and the trees were encumbered with ice. And so I read that, and I wrote down the day that this happened. And then as I'm looking at the chronology, I'm seeing, oh, well, this very dramatic thing happened to Jefferson at the same time in Richmond right nearby. And I know that the ice storm has happened this exact day. So I'm able to put that very tiny, seemingly insignificant piece of information into my incredibly long chronology. And then later take the chronology and use that as the the backbone of writing the book. So the chronology sort of transforms into the book. And then when I write the book... My style is I write and I rewrite. So many, many pages of the book are rewritten from top to bottom you know, after I finished. And then after I finished the book, I went back and I said, well, what have I learned from this? Because I didn't have a preconceived notion about what Jefferson learned. And I tried to then read through it and, and see what I think Jefferson learned. Um, and as I wrote yesterday in the op-ed piece in the uh, RTD, um, I do think Jefferson took some very important lessons uh, from what he learned. Uh, two very briefly, and I'm getting a far from your question, but very briefly, 
Uh, one lesson is he ran for president, partly because he was concerned that someone else, a Federalist who believed in a strong standing army, might be too anxious to go to war against a European power. And Jefferson felt that perhaps the country might not be prepared, and he wrote that, I think, one war enough for the life of one man. If, if the nation had to go to war, Jefferson said, we'd fight like men. But he didn't want to go to war uh, needlessly, and he was concerned some in Congress would, would do so. Secondly, um, he signed a piece of legislation, very important that people may not realize, he signed legislation that created the Military Training Academy at West Point. West Point, of course, existed, but he wanted an academy that, A, would train officers to his thinking, which was different than perhaps Federalist thinking, um, and also would be involved with the construction of forts, canals, perhaps have a better fort system than was set up at Hood's Point, the fort I described to you that did not stop the invasion here in Virginia. I think Jefferson took that lesson with him uh, when he was president. Uh, for the next question, if you can wait till the mic comes to you to ask the question. Next question. There were some uh, legislative commissions that studied his conduct. Uh, without giving away the plot, can you comment on those? Uh, the question is, what about the legislative commission set up to study Jefferson's conduct? And this is a major part of the book. I described how Jefferson vacated the governorship while he was at Monticello just hours before he fled. He then went to Poplar Forest, and while at Poplar Forest, the great house of today, if you've been there, did not exist at the time, of course. It was the overseer's cabin. He receives a letter, and the letter asks him to answer a number of charges. Basically, Jefferson's already been, in effect, censured by the legislature because this investigation's been launched, and now they want, and remember, the revolution is hardly won at this point, and if it's to be lost, Jefferson would share part of the blame, perhaps. Jefferson spends many weeks composing this reply Jefferson believes, rightly or wrongly, that this was at the instigation of his one-time friend, Patrick Henry. And one thread throughout the book is I write in great detail, because I know this happens at the end, I write in great detail about the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry. I think it's one of the more interesting relationships of the American Revolution, perhaps not as well understood. But if you know what happens at the end, you understand why it's important. Um, they had met when they were both very young, and Jefferson was on his way to Williamsburg to attend the College of William and Mary, and Jefferson gave Henry credit for setting off the ball of revolution in Virginia and called, Jefferson, uh, called Henry the greatest orator he'd ever heard. But at other points, Jefferson said that Henry was avaricious and rotten-hearted, quote-unquote. <laughs> at another point, when they were fighting over a legislative matter, Jefferson wrote to a friend from Paris of Henry, what we have to do, I think, is devoutly pray for his death. We think of Henry for the phrase, give me liberty or give me death, not for that latter phrase I just told you. <laughs> but this gives you some sense of the animosity, um, incredibly, that there was between these two men at points of their life. They were friends later in life. Jefferson would speak very highly and then very critically, almost in the same sentence, uh, about Henry. He gave him credit, but also had disdain for him. And if you read the history, it seems like the, you know, one of the main reasons for that is the... Um, the fact that this investigation was lost, was launched, excuse me, and he believed that Henry was to blame. By the time it came for Jefferson to deliver his defense here in Richmond in December of 1781, the battle at Yorktown had been won. And the legislators basically said to Thomas Jefferson, never mind. All is forgiven, and we thank you for your exemplary conduct. Jefferson, however, this was a time of great honor. His honor had been challenged and Jefferson wanted to deliver his defense in his honor. So he stood up at the legislature and, in effect, questioned himself. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? 
and Jefferson answered his own questions so that the record would be clear on why he did what he did. And for example, he said, well, George Washington would write me regularly saying that there was some unknown fleet heading somewhere in the south, but we got these warnings all the time and how difficult it was to call it the militia. And he goes through one by one that I describe where he tries to give a defense of why he did what he did. Nonetheless, having delivered that defense, Jefferson wrote to a friend how deeply this had affected him. He said he wanted nothing more to do with politics. He said, I have not a particle of ambition left for politics. He said that the wounds inflicted as a result of this will be cured only by the, quote, all-healing grave. So you can imagine how deeply he was affected by what you just asked about. So again, thank you for this question. It's, it's such an important part of understanding Jefferson because it's not until 20 years later that he's president. So obviously he does have that ambition again when he becomes concerned about what's going on with federalism. And when he does attain the presidency, he says that he considers it a second American revolution. So it gives you some idea of his thinking. Uh, next question with a microphone. Thank you very much for being here. We've enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, it wasn't just Mr. Jefferson who took flight. It was the General Assembly of Virginia. Right. And um, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about what they did, particularly with a very weak governor who was, well, not even governor for part of it. Uh, but I know they met in Stanton, and that's where they selected right. the new governor, right. I believe. Right. And they must have met somewhere near Charlottesville. But I want you to tell us a little bit how the General Assembly um, occupied itself during these days. The question is what, and I probably heard it because I have the mic, but the question basically is what happened with the General Assembly here in Richmond, and they also took flight. Absolutely, they did. And in fact, it's to Jefferson's credit that while the Assembly was fleeing, uh, he was hanging around. He was writing to members saying, please come. If you look back at the records, you'll find that several members of the Governor's Council retired um, at this time. It's difficult to get new appointments. Difficult to get legislators to come assemble here. Just imagine if you're a legislator in some remote county and they're British roaming all over Virginia and your constituents are telling you, you know, you keep on calling me out, you don't give me arms, um, I, my family's I'm defended. So the legislators are, if you read some of the transcripts, you know, they have their own concerns, um, some of them understandable. But the bottom line is it was difficult to get them here and they did flee. In fact, there's a fascinating part of the record that you can read, it's still preserved, where you can go day by day of the last days of the assembly here in Richmond um, in the spring of 1781. And for several days, there's a clerk who tries to get a quorum, and the record shows no quorum, no quorum. And finally, the clerk writes that given, I'm paraphrasing, that given the fact that the British are about to come into Richmond, that perhaps we should go to Charlottesville regardless of the lack of a quorum. So they do. <laughs> That's when they go to Charlottesville. They believe the closer to the mountains, the less likely it is that the British will come. But as I described earlier, the British learned that they were going to call out more militia when they got to that assembly, um, ad hoc as it was, in Charlottesville, and that's why they then went on to Charlottesville, and that's why Jefferson uh, had to flee Monticello. Other questions? Uh, in the back? Uh, I'm interested in the booty that they were after that they took out of Richmond in the 40-some ships. Was it gold, silver, or was it tobacco? The question is, what was the booty they took from Richmond? They took booty from a lot of different places. This is something that I think is not um, well known about the invasion 
by Arnold, and that is, is that he came here with this fleet, and there was another, he was commanding one half the fleet, basically, another person was in charge of another, although Arnold was overall in charge, and they came up with this agreement where they would basically split the prizes. And this was part of, if you were a, a sailor at this time, this was to be expected. I mean, you were not paid terribly well, it was difficult work, dangerous work, and this was part of, in essence, you viewed it as part of your pay. Um, and Arnold certainly did as well. So coming in, um, Arnold actually made a, a proposal to the people of Richmond that, uh, that, in essence, asked the governor to give up. It's not clear whether they wanted to have Jefferson turned over or not, but wrote a letter that I believe is here held by the Historical Society. If I'm, if I'm not, I believe I'm correct. I believe so. Um, it's footnoted in the book anyway, and, but I believe that's the case. Uh, or maybe it's the Library of Virginia. In any case, there is a letter that was sent and... Um, in essence, telling the people that if you will turn over everything that we want, we'll pay you half the worth of those goods. So you get half the value, and we won't take as much as we would have otherwise. But they needed Jefferson's agreement to this document. Now, if you're Thomas Jefferson and you know that Benedict Arnold had tried to capture West Point and probably George Washington, you may be thinking this is not a good idea to come and sign this document. <laughs> anyway, Jefferson does not sign this document. Arnold mocks Jefferson as the nominal governor, and he actually blames Jefferson in part for what happened in Richmond because Jefferson was inconsiderate and did not agree to this deal where you would give over your goods for half their value. So basically they took a lot of goods, and a lot of people went out basically on their own. They took in things. They wanted the ships, and um, I believe a lot of the plunder obviously would have been tobacco. That was something that was extremely valuable, and there are many descriptions in legal documents that I read that are kept at the British National Archives that do describe you know, much um, hauling of tobacco aboard these ships. So obviously that was something that was worth an awful lot. Uh, and other goods, there's silver, there's all sorts of things. When they go to Jefferson's townhouse, uh, and they go in the basement, and they find various things that they take, um, and they, um, they find the wine, they find all sorts of things, they take that as well, and they take the slaves and bring the slaves over basically to their side. And some of those slaves are, um, it is said, not freed until the battle at Yorktown. Other questions? Who else? Uh, yes, yes, in the uh, back. Go ahead. I was wondering um, if you see any modern-day politicians that have similarities or that you would compare to <laughs> Thomas Jefferson um, as governor and then subsequently as president. Uh, next question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so, it's so hard to talk about someone who lived so long ago and to put yourself in that time period. I would be reluctant to name any person, because then I'll be stuck with that for forever, if I name someone <laughs> in particular. Jefferson's such a singular character, and I find him so interesting because he's a man of such great contradictions, starting with all men are created equal, but owning many slaves. He said many things in many letters. He wrote 19,000 or more letters in his lifetime, and you can find, in some cases, completely contradictory statements about the same things, partly because he's writing to one person, pleasing that person, then writing to someone else. So as a historian, unlike a politician of today, we have the luxury of looking back and knowing the full story of his life. It's a little bit harder today when you look at a politician because they're still going on. They're still, it's still a living story. So in Jefferson's case, I think it is important to understand, okay, he did this. This happened 20 years later. He was president. We know how he took those lessons. So it, it makes it easier. But I, I, I don't know who else I would – I'm reluctant to give you a specific name. I hope that's a good answer. Yes. Um, does the townhouse that Jefferson occupied during the invasion still exist? The question is, what happened to the townhouse that he occupied? It does not exist. 
Um, I have talked to people here in Richmond who believe they know where the townhouse, I believe it was described as a wood frame townhouse, that they believe they know where it was, not in the exact same place as the governor's mansion today, not terribly far away, but I did spend some time with someone who, who said we believe it's here. There were, as I recall this correctly, this is now when I was here doing some of this more than two years ago, but that there was a little bit of conflict back and forth as to where it was, but the actual building, you know, there's almost nothing left, unfortunately, from those times. I believe there's a stone house. There's a very, very little left, partly because of what happened during the Civil War. Yes? Actually, that was my same question. <laughs> How large was this British force which uh, traveled from the Capes to uh, Charlottesville and Monticello? And then where did they go after they left Monticello? Okay, you heard the question, how large was the force that came in? There were actually at least three forces. So Arnold had a force of 1,600 men. William Phillips had a force of, I forget the exact number, but a few thousand. Cornwallis and Tarleton had maybe a couple or 2,000. Some forces went and came back. So at the largest, it was more than 7,000. Um, and they went all across. There was a point at which, and I described this in the book, where Cornwallis went to another plantation owned by Jefferson called Elk Hill. I don't know if you've ever heard of Elk Hill. Many of you may have been there. Um, Elk Hill um, does not exist today as a Jefferson site, and basically this, this entire uh, plantation was overrun. Jefferson was very bitter um, about Cornwallis's overrunning of Elk Hill. Monticello was basically left intact. Tarleton's men did not destroy Monticello. And although Tarleton is known in history as Bloody Tarleton, Jefferson wrote very thankfully that Tarleton did not destroy Monticello. I write in the book some conjecture about why that may be, why it was not destroyed. And where they went afterwards, uh, they went to, they, they didn't make a good decision. They went to a town called Yorktown. <laughs> and that seems like a good place to end the story. The British obviously were defeated there, and Jefferson, that was a very good thing for Jefferson because that meant that they did not come after Jefferson when they were censoring his conduct. Thank you so much. It's been a great honor to be here.